0: This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. I move on to point four. Point the Levitical Law and the Oath of God. God stipulated that only Aaron and his sons were to serve him as priests. And let's now go quickly to Numbers 18, verse 7. Numbers chapter 18, verse 7. Begin reading at verse 5. You are to be responsible for the care of the sanctuary and the altar, so that wrath will not fall on the Israelites again. He's speaking to Aaron. I myself have selected your fellow Levites from among the Israelites as a gift to you, dedicated to the Lord to do the work at the tent of meeting tabernacle. But only you and your sons may serve as priests in connection with everything at the altar and inside the curtain. I am giving you the service of the priesthood as a gift. Anyone else who comes near the sanctuary must be put to death. So we read that God himself explicitly stated that only (coughs) Aaron and his descendants would serve as priest, and no one else. Now this has been given as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Look at, <coughs> excuse me, Numbers eighteen, verse twenty-three. I began reading at verse twenty-one. I give to the Levites all the tithe in Israel as their inher- inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. From now on, the Israelites must not go near to the tent of meeting or they will bear the consequences of their sin and die. Verse 23. It is the Levites who are to do the work at the tent of meeting and bear the responsibility for offense against it. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. They will receive no inheritance among the Israelites. Good. So, it is God who is giving this law and says it is a lasting ordinance for generations to come. The Levites then were to assist the priests. And both priests and Levites had to prove by genealogical records that they had a right to serve God at the tabernacle and later the temple. And that went straight through the exilic period. When they came back, the temple was rebuilt and it continued until the year 70 when the temple was destroyed and the priesthood came to an end. Just an aside here, when in 1967 the Sixth Day War was fought, Sixth day shalt the labor and do all thy work, and rest on the seventh day, they did, and they conquered Jerusalem and the Wailing Wall. And then, then the discussion was held, what shall we do with it all? Well, the first thought was, by way of the upper rabbinate in Jerusalem, and to rebuild the temple. You know, now that we have the Wailing Wall, now the temple. That meant to destroy the mosque of Omar. You don't destroy uh, that holy place because then you have a jihad on your hands. So, they nixed that. And they said, no, <laughs> not that. Then they said, well, we have to have priests. <coughs> well, there are Countless people by the name of Cohen. C-O-H-E-N. We had a man by the name of William Cohen in the last administration. The word Cohen means priest. But no one is able to trace his parentage, his lineage, all the way back to Aaron. So that one is out. And number three, we should have sacrifices in the city of Jerusalem. Well, one of the sources of income in Israel is tourism. And now can you imagine the smell if you have animals and sacrifice them in Jerusalem? It drives away every tourist. And they nixed that and they said, well, let's keep things going as they are. Okay, I'm drifting just a little bit. I must get back. We read that the priests and the Levites had to prove their genealogical records and then they had a right to serve God at the tabernacle and later at the temple. As I've pointed out to you, this is repetitious, but here it is. The period of service for a priest was but a decade or two. He was to be installed at the age of 30 and served until he was 50. That was a basic rule. Even in Luke chapter 3, you read, when Jesus was above 30 years of age, he began his ministry. And we may also assume that Paul Saul in those days, was 30 years of age when he began his ministry. Well, the ministry was to go to Damascus and to capture Christians and take them to Jerusalem to be punished and even be put to death. 30 years of age. Continue. Rules change in Solomonic times by lowering the age to 25. You may have the evidence in 1 Chronicles 23, verse 24 and 27. And in post-exilic times, to the year 20, 20 years of age. Look up Ezra 3.8, if you please. Similarly, the time of service for a high priest was relatively short. You didn't become a high priest at the age of 30. (laughs) No, it's probably closer to the age of 40 or 45. Josephus, in his Antiquities, chapter 20, section two twenty-seven, notes that 83 high priests served from Aaron to the fall of the second temple in A.D. 70. And some high priests were hanging on to the offers and just... Could not let go, happens more often. But Ananias had been deposed by the Romans, and then he had his son in law, Caiaphas, was appointed, and they had two high priests when Jesus was crucified. The priesthood of Melchizedek, by contrast, is everlasting. God swore an oath, as we read by way of Psalm 110, verse 4, with regard to the Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ. A law can be repealed. An oath is forever. And the Jewish rabbis, the Pharisees, The teachers of the law should have known all that. But unfortunately, the Melchizedekian priesthood given to us by way of Genesis chapter 14 and Psalm 110 was never studied. Point five. Jesus fulfilled the obligations of the Aaronic and Melchizedekian priesthood. Chapter 5 teaches the duties of the high priest. Once more, have a look at chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5. Note how it is put. We read, verse 1, Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since He Himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of his people. You find all this recorded for you in great detail in Leviticus 9 verse 7 as well as in Leviticus 16 verse 6. Let's quickly look at Leviticus 16 verse 6. And here we read as follows. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot is the, is the scapegoat, shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for, to, for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is referring to in chapter 5 of his letter in verse 3. Now, as I pointed out, Jesus offered not the blood of bulls or blood of goats, but His own blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross of Calvary. And we read in chapter 7 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 that all this was done once for all. Once for all. Look at 7 verse 27. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all. Hapax is the word in Greek. Once for all. When he offered himself This is also repeated in 9, verse 12. Talking about Christ as high priest, who went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. Now, verse 12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, But He entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood having obtained eternal redemption. And then we move on to verse 26. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And last, 10, verse 10. I read, And by that will, the will of God, the will of Christ, I have come to do your will, O God, that is, God's will, fulfilled obediently by Christ. And by that will... We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. No sacrifice is needed anymore. May I make a comment? And I hope I'm not stepping on sensitive toes. If so, please say, "Ouch." And we know. Protestants have a cross inside the church or outside the church. It's an empty cross. Catholics have a cross with the body of Jesus on it. And I would say there's a difference. The Catholics constantly point to the sacrifice the body of Christ, which in itself is good. But Protestants say, no, the sacrifice has been done and given once for all. That's it. No other sacrifices are necessary. and Therefore, we have an empty cross to point to the resurrection of Jesus I'm not saying that Roman Catholics are not Christians that's not the point I am saying that the emphasis theological emphasis should be on the resurrection and there's a difference I didn't hear any ouches. Okay, I must move on. The last statement under point five. The Aaronic priesthood is one of consecration. Every 20 years there was another consecration and another consecration. And on it went. The Melchizedekian priesthood is one of dedication. There is no consecration. That was at the beginning, way back. And it remains forever. And therefore, it is one of dedication of service. It is eternal. And there's a difference. Last, point six. We'll have to spend some time on point six. Yes. Yes. Certainly. The question is, what precisely is meant by consecration of the Aaronic priesthood and the dedication of the Melchizedekian priesthood? Very good question. My answer is that Aaron was consecrated. And God tells us very clearly in the book of Numbers, chapter 18, that after Aaron passes away, then His sons will be, or one of his sons, will be consecrated. And after he passes away, another. So, going back to Yosefus now, there were 83 high priests serving from the time of Aaron until the destruction of Jerusalem. It was always consecration, consecration. And then think of all the consecrations of priests. It was always, may I call them festivities, Solemn moments. Well, when do we read about the consecration of Melchizedek? When do we read about the consecration of Jesus, the Messiah? Well, Psalm 110, verse 4, saying very clearly that I have sworn an oath and will not change my mind. You are priests forever. Now, when that was, you and I will never know. But God appointed the Messiah to be priest in the order of Melchizedek. And now, notice the difference: Jesus, the high priest, is dedicated. To serve you and me. How? Now I'll be very honest with you. And I'll lay my soul before you. And you can look into it. Okay? I pray. And that's a holy moment in my life. When I address God. I enter his sacred presence with my prayers. And when I'm... Into it for about five minutes. Suddenly my thoughts go to my van. That needs a little care. And I have to take it to the shop. Oh I have to get back too. <laughs> now in the moment of holiness. Here is the thought about a vehicle. Now what did Jesus do? Jesus takes that I'll be honest, imperfect prayer. And he perfects it as the high priest and he presents it to God the Father. He is the intercessor. Paul talks about it in Romans 8, 34. And that's a dedication. Jesus is always with us. He is with us when we worship. He is singing the psalms and the hymns and even the choruses, together with his people. Holiness. Dedication. There's my answer. Any other questions? Yes, Frank. Dr. Kissamaker, how are we to conceive of the moment of Christ's atonement where if he is being offered as a sacrifice and being abandoned by the Father, separated, incurring spiritual death, and yet, there's many verses that say that he entered into God's presence right. in heaven. Mm-hmm. How are we to conceive of that? Okay, how do we? Con- the question is, how do we conceive of Jesus entering the presence of God when he has, <coughs> on earth, completed his work on the cross, right? Separated from God the Father, and how do you relate the two? <coughs> what Jesus did, he gave absolute proof of his suffering, of being forsaken by God the Father, of dying and offering his spirit to God, being in the grave for three days, not three days, 24 hours, some people do that. No, we are talking about a Jewish way of reckoning time. The Jewish day starts, even today, at 6 o'clock in the evening. If you go to Jerusalem on a Friday evening at 6 o'clock, quiet. Sabbath starts. New day. And come Saturday evening, (coughs) 6 o'clock, back to business. So, Jesus died 3 o'clock Friday afternoon. Three hours left. That's a full day. 24-hour day. And then you have all day Saturday until six o'clock in the evening, and then you have six o'clock Sunday morning, and that's again a whole day, so we say three days. That's how the Jew reckoned time. Now, Jesus gave absolute proof of his suffering and his death. And when he died, he went to heaven. Where else would he have been? No, I'm not talking about the ascension. That was the final going to heaven. But he entered heaven when he died with the proof I have paid for our people, Father. All their sins have been paid for. And there's the proof. Okay? Anything else yet? Now, the last part. Covenant. Covenant. if there is any word you hear here on campus it's the word covenant after all we are covenant theologians Uh, we have a covenant doctrine you hear it everywhere this is it and why because the entire old testament teaches the covenant the israelites were covenant people and even to the extremes of saying, well, if we are God's covenant people, uh, then God will certainly protect us. Yes. Come the exile and they were sent on to Babylon. And they were even saying it in the year 70 when the Roman soldiers surrounded the city of Jerusalem. We are God's people. Yes. But the city was destroyed. A covenant always has to have two Parties. God and His people. And God is saying, I will be a God to you and I will bless you and I will fulfill all my promises to you because you are my children. That's the one side. And the other side is, you are my people and you are to keep my commandments and you are to live for me wholeheartedly. And when that happens then you have that beautiful relationship of father and children in the household of God. That's the covenant. Now, you can trace it throughout the Old Testament and obviously into the New Testament. But if I would put you on the spot and say, now, tell me, where in Paul's 13 epistles do you find a covenant Theology worked out. <laughs> well, there is a reference somewhere in Galatians to the covenant. And a few other places. In Paul's epistles, uh, let's say in Second Corinthians chapter 3, uh, you find a reference, yes, yes. But what Paul is saying is, I assume that you people know about the covenant. But no one has worked it out. Except for the writer of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews makes it a special point in chapter 8, in chapter 9, and chapter 10. And he does virtually the same thing as he did with Melchizedek. And he is saying, have you people ever paid attention to what God said by way of the prophet Jeremiah 600 years before the birth of Christ? And no, (laughs) no, we didn't. Okay, now we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 8. Have a look. Hebrews chapter 8. And I read. Verse 7, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, and the first covenant was ratified by Moses recorded for us in Exodus 24. Keep your finger at Hebrews 8 and we go to Exodus 24 when we read about the first covenant. I begin reading at verse 3. Exodus 24, verse 3 through verse 8. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Here is the ratification, the seal of approval on that first covenant. Moses, the mediator between God and His people, and the people saying, Yes, we will do everything the Lord God has said. That's the covenant. See it? Now, back to Hebrews chapter 8. Verse 7, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After the time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. And they will be my people. And no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And that's a quotation from Jeremiah 31, the verses 31 through 34. The writer continues and concludes the chapter by saying, By calling this covenant new, He has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Now, what is the Lord God saying by way of Jeremiah the prophet? He is saying, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. We're talking about the division of the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and the ten tribes. The ten tribes were exiled in the year 722 BC, and the two tribes were exiled in the year 586 BC. Now look at verse 10. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. Notice, he's no longer talking about that vision. He is saying the time is going to come that Israel will be reunited. No mention is made of Judah. Going back to verse 9, It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because the, they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them. What has changed in all these centuries? And the answer is nothing. It doesn't matter whether you are a Presbyterian, a Baptist, a Methodist, an Episcopal, it's all the same. Children, young people are baptized. The parents rejoice because of God's grace and God's sign of approval on our child. Wonderful! Ten years later, the child couldn't care less. child even has a word for it. Here it is. I chucked it. Now, do you think for one moment, I'm serious now, do you think for one moment that the sign on the forehead signifying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can be just removed? And the answer is no. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That sign of the covenant will always remain indelibly. You can't see it, but it's there. And when the person who says, I chucked it and I couldn't care less, I had nothing to do with it, that person will stand before God on the judgment day with the name of the triune God. God will say, I have been faithful to that covenant. But you weren't. You refused. And here are, your, here are your words. Here are your actions. You are condemned by your own utterances. While I remained faithful. And now look, what did the Israelites do? All along, throughout the history of Israel, these people are turning away from God. And it is God who tries to bring them back and again and again. And yes, in the process, countless, may I even say millions who turned their backs to god and went their own willful way are lost the father could have sent a care package to the son he said yes i was listening to the news and he was peter jennings and he told us there was a famine in your country And now I have sent my faithful servant, Jonah, to go to you. And here is a care package. And greetings from mom as well. He didn't? And the father, if he had any sense of care, emotions, would have rushed to that country and say to his son, Come back home, son. Come back home. I'll feed you. I'll dress you. Come. Father didn't do so. He waited. Why? Look. The parable of the sheep that was lost. That's an animal without a soul. That coin the woman lost in her house as an inanimate object But the son is a human being. with A mind and a soul. And now what happens? God puts him in that pig pen and he has to work seven days a week for a Gentile, mind you. A Jew doesn't eat pigs. Seven days a week. Not a day of rest. And he says, enough. We read, and he came to his senses and he said, I've sinned against heaven, against God, and against my father. I shall return and say to my father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like your hired men. And when the son returns, there he is. Oh, I know, you had that North American vision. A uh, father is standing on the front porch of the veranda of the farmhouse and looking down the driveway and onto the road. And Lo and behold, that's my son. I can see, see it by the way he walks. <laughs> that's my second son. And he rushes out and he puts his arms around. I am so happy, son, that you have returned. No. That's your North North American view. What you have to do is look at it from a Palestinian view. Ancient Israel. The father lived in the village. And the fields were outside. And now this son, probably at the age of 17, had said to his father, I wish you were dead. that's not in the text but that's what it comes down to I would like to have my portion of the inheritance now imagine you going to your father and say I'd like to have my inheritance now what would he say well son that is very considerate of you (laughs) (laughs) and then the son says (laughs) not in in money cash will you and the father gives in without saying a word what do you think happened in that village where the father lived all the news was communicated far and wide everyone knew about it the son was a black sheep and now that son is coming home and can you imagine smelly he stinks clothes are rags. It's filthy. No shoes left. Barefoot. And now imagine, I'm not trying to embellish this, but imagine that the teenage boys seeing the prodigal son returning. Ha, 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 ha. Look, there he comes. Ha, ha. A verbal abuse. And the father rushes out and puts his protective arms around him. And he's saying, come my son, I'll protect you. And saying to the servant, go into the house and get the robe, put it around him. Go into the house and get the sandals, put it on his feet and a ring on his finger. And by the way, all you people here, come to my house this evening and we're going to have a feast. We're going to kill the fattened calf and all of you will celebrate with me because my son, who was dead, is alive. Dead? The father meant spiritually dead. Drifted away. And now he is restored because he said to God, I have sinned against you. He is alive spiritually. You see the difference? Now, that's covenant theology. The prodigal son came back. Now, back to what we have to say here. The author says, I'm quoting Jeremiah chapter 31. And what have you people done with that new covenant? Look, I read. This is the covenant, verse 10, that I will make with the house of Israel after the time declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. All God's people reading Scripture, applying Scripture, living Scripture, praying throughout the day, singing psalms and praises. Now, that's making God known. And you don't say to your neighbor anymore, know the Lord, because He knows Him. And then comes that blessing, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Forgiven. Cleansed. God and His people are one. And now we turn to chapter 9. I'm not going into all the exegesis of verses 15 and on. Pick it up at verse 16, 17. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove that the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died, it takes effect. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. And they have Exodus 24. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll in all the people. He said, this is is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, He sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, where is is that new covenant inaugurated. Well, let's turn to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. And I read verse 19, and on. Luke twenty two nineteen, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, here it is. Read it with me. The cup is, is the new covenant in my blood. You see it? New covenant in my blood. That's the moment. And only a few hours hence, Jesus is perspiring, sweating drops as of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, and still a few hours later, hanging on the cross. Shedding his blood. So every time you and I partake of the Lord's Supper, we think of that covenant, that new covenant inaugurated by Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion. I have a few verses here that I should call attention to yet and that is in chapter 15 uh, pardon me chapter 10 verse 15 chapter 10 15 and on this is the covenant I will make with them after that time says the Lord I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds and then he adds their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sins. No more sacrifices. What kind of sacrifices? The writer of Hebrews speaks about it and says they are the sacrifices of thankful lips, singing praises of thanksgiving. Now, four passages yet 8 verse 6 the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one and is founded on better promises. Verse 8 of chapter 8. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 9:15. For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. And 12:24. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.